Hey, everybody. The deadline to get your application in for the spring vintage of Village Global Accelerator is March 1st. Companies that have been through the accelerator have raised from some of the best venture funds in the world, like A16Z, Lux, Spark, Bessemer, Founders Fund, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash accelerator. Hey, everybody. It's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by returning fan favorite, Shil Manat of Better Tomorrow Ventures and portfolio CEO, uh, Greg Miaskowitz of Catbase. Uh, Greg, Shiel, well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, hey, for, thanks having for having us. us. So, Greg, by, by way of introduction, why don't you describe what is Catbase and, and what are the experiences that uh, you had that led you to start it? So we built Capbase to solve a lot of the pain points for early stage founders, especially founders that may not have a big network in Silicon Valley that gets them a network to get top tier legal help from a law firm like Oric or Gunderson, Dittmer, et cetera. And, you know, I've founded a company before. I've advised companies, done some angel investing, and I found that it's actually very complicated and it is very expensive to get a company off the ground. However, at the same time, a lot of the paperwork, whether that's safes or equity agreements or completely templatized within law firms. So that sort of got us digging into how do we make life easier for founders? And so we're really building legal and financial tools to streamline a lot of administrative workflows within companies so that could be, for example, incorporating a company, buying your founder shares, or hiring an employee and giving them stock options, or raising money from an investor using a safer convertible note. And the way that works on Capbase is that we've built a integrated, streamlined solution that actually replaces multiple point solutions. So doing something like hiring an employee and giving them stock options in a normal company, that involves a point solution for signing contracts. It'll involve a point solution for actually storing the executed agreements and then later sending them in due diligence. It'll involve a point solution for cap table management. It'll involve a point solution for payroll or even corporate credit cards. And there's manual data entry and re-entry between all these systems. By contrast, on Capbase, we walk the founders through customizing and generating all of the employment contracts, including visualizing what the impact is to the cap table. Say in the case of employee stock options, how does the stock option grant compare to other employee grants? How much of the employee stock option pool is left over for incentivizing other key hires? then we issue the contracts for signing in our system. We do the e-signing. And because we have all of that data that went into the contract, it actually allows us to build a lot of things on top of it. Then we also process the transaction to deal with another pain point. We process the transaction for the equity or for an investment deal. 
we actually yesterday had our first large safes actually be executed on the platform because um, we're processing the payments for not just employee stock options, but also say things like a convertible note or safe. So as soon as the transaction goes through, we take that data that was entered into the contract and we update the company's cap table. We also keep the company's document room up to date for future review and due diligence. So there's no manual document organizing. And we also take that data and power employee onboarding on top of that, because that same information with the employee name and address can be used to set up payroll. It can be used to set up a corporate credit card on Brex. Um, so we have an API integration live with Gusto, and we're working on one for Brex, um, but we also do other employee uh, API integrations. So like that would be email setup, Slack, and GitHub. So, so we're taking, our philosophy is that we don't want to be another silo for data. We do not want to be a point solution. We want to solve and streamline kind of core administrative actions within companies to make life easier for founders and take the data that's generated and make it useful and actionable in other platforms. Because when you go to incorporate a company, that same data that you generate in those contracts, both the business registration as well as the ownership data and incorporation records, that's the exact same information you need to enter to set up payroll, to set up benefits, to set up a bank, to get business insurance. And so we've built API integrations and partnerships to streamline uh, the setup of these kinds of core business services that every single startup needs uh, on top of this data in our system. Awesome. Uh, Sheil, why don't you describe how you approach this as an investor, how you thought about CapAce and you looked at startups in the space? Yeah. Yeah, I think like the thing that really spoke to me is, so I've been a founder before and I've faced a lot of these issues where like, you're setting up a company. There's all these different things you need to do. If you look just like on Twitter, there are like constantly every day people are searching for these things and like typing like, how do I do this? How do I do that? And like for so many of the things I think about like, oh, the answer is cap based. Like that's how you should do it. That's how you should set up your board. That's how you should incorporate your company. That's how you purchase founder shares. That's how you register. That's how you take in investors. They can match. They can tie the investment back to the actual investment. Uh, or they can t tie the dollars back to the actual investment. All these things that I personally hated doing as a founder felt like a complete waste of time. And like this thing, like this like really bothered me that like I was doing this waste of time. And then all the hundreds of other founders were doing the same exact damn thing. And everybody should be using effectively very similar documents very similar everything. Like, why is it a manual process that involves that many humans? Like, let's just automate the thing. And it's like, the, it's the perfect thing that software can automate. And so when I met these guys, I thought like, yeah, this is, this is perfect. This is a great solution. And um, so it was a very quick uh, decision for me from that point, you know, did a bunch of references on the team that came out really stellar. And then I thought like, this is something that needs to exist in the world. Let's do it. Yeah. I mean, similarly, in the sense that you know, founder's time is so precious as is, it should be focused on on getting to product market fit and and and, and any time spent on on these tasks that are you know more than they should be are, are are really just a huge waste. 
And so, and then similarly, I'm excited about, you know, a mission that to, I'm on, I'm on a mission to help enable more founders get off the ground. So spiritually, I really just, you know, identified with, uh, or resonated with, with cap base in the sense of anything that removes friction from that process is, uh, is something I, 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 I get really excited about. Greg, why don't you take us down a little bit of how you navigated the idea maze to figuring out sort of what was the right sort of initial product um, and then how you think about, uh, you know, the, the initial wedge first, uh, where you start and, and then, you know, how that relates to where, where you want to finish. Yeah, I can take you from the initial idea. So the initial idea was really born out of a thought experiment. I had a lot of accidental bets in crypto from just leaving money around. Actually, this relates to my first company. We bought a bunch of botnet traffic on the dark web in order to profile the bots, in order to develop bot detection technology. So I had all this money kind of laying around in Bitcoin that I didn't, I just never spent on bots. Um, and then I invested into other kind of crypto things and like was just sort of, I was just fascinated with the space. I wasn't like deeply interested in it. I didn't, I don't actually still think that cryptocurrency is really going to get used as currency. Um, and I think there's a lot of applications of distributed ledgers that are potentially interesting. So. Catbase was actually born out of a discussion around hypothetical applications of distributed ledgers. Then I started researching and Delaware had passed the law that said you could basically use uh, some sort of cryptographic token to track equity. It was Senate Bill 69 in like 2017. So that, that just got me thinking about tracking equity and tracking documents and tracking who signed the documents, authorization for signing of documents, and how you build a governance system, and also how you can more efficiently track these transactions. Then I realized it didn't really matter whether you use a distributed ledger or not to solve this problem. <laughs> like it, it can just be in a really secure database and it doesn't matter right now but it also led to I mean, we were taught chatting about privately before about the hypothetical idea of making cap tables public um but that also i mean you can understand why i thought about that because this is kind of the thought experiment discussion with uh, that that led to this product idea then i went about systematically validating the product idea by literally talking to every founder that uh, I was connected to on LinkedIn that would talk to me and getting a lot of data points about their experience working with lawyers, uh, how much of the process they understood around fundraising, um, how much money they spent and, and so on at different stages of the company. And I, for my previous company, we'd also gone through Y Combinator's program for super early stage companies, YC Fellowship. And so I had access to the alumni network. And so I would uh, just give people help with something. And then in turn, I would ask them to, if they would answer basically my survey questions and get on another call. So it was like, a, I was getting paid back with data for helping someone with some, you know, something that they needed my help with that I had expertise in. Let's dig deeper into your, into your thought experiment. This is really interesting. Uh, should cap tables, uh, all cap tables be public? Uh, what one you explain your thoughts on it, maybe uh, explain even both sides of it. 
and, and why you're so fascinated by, by, by this question? Well, I think in terms of ownership records, I, I mean, what good is it having this ownership be private? I mean, what are you like, what could a founder tripathetically like what what advantages do they gain from keeping that information private versus making it public? It, it's kind of like the same argument around transparency and salaries. Like, yes, you could potentially pay someone less than what they should objectively get if you're not transparent about salaries. Uh, so in terms of, you know, equity grants, like, it, you know, companies should be transparent with their employees about, you know, this person got a lot of equity because they took a lot more risk. They joined the company way earlier and and have a system for being transparent and, and open and rational uh, and uh, non-arbitrary about those decisions. And similarly, you know, and in, from the investor side, if cap tables were public, I, I would know if an investor had a conflict. I don't necessarily care. I mean, there are people who are cap-based investors who are Carta investors and we're also Atrium investors. But I at least want to be able to have the conversation and not have that concealed from me as the founder. I think that's really interesting. I haven't, like, I haven't ever really thought about that. I think there should be a lot more transparency in general, like as a VC too. I think like you should know sort of ties in with that same topic. Like you should know how much of a company I own or, or maybe like how active in the company I am. You should know like how the company is doing. I wish it was a normal thing for VCs to publish their stats, like DPI, TVPI, IRR. Like I think that should be public information. And then I relish finding that information. So like, I'll like send out requests to public public universities to invest in VCs to like get that information just because I'm curious. But I, I think it's interesting. I think it's an interesting notion to say that it should be public because like I can't argue with you. I can't make any arguments that are good in favor of why it shouldn't be public. It just feels like it shouldn't be public. There's some social norm there. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's um I certainly think in in double opt-in ways. Uh, you know, if, if people double opt in, want certain things to be public, it should be super easy to, to, to make it transparent. There, there's sort of some broader, you know, it's almost a philosophical point of like, can people actually handle the truth? Uh, and in, in certain cases, maybe they can. In certain cases, you know, it, it's more challenging. And, and you mentioned compensation data, right? You know, there are companies, you know, this is probably a reason why, why they're not transparent with value data, where there's just huge differences between, be, between sort of the, you know, highest producer earning people and the lowest earning people. And for that to be transparent, that's putting a big cognitive burden on the, the lower earning people to sort of face that. Or, 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 or like, and maybe there are certain times where it's not deserved, but there are other times where it's actually deserved. And now they have to sort of like wrestle with that in a way that they didn't previously in terms of ignorance is, ignorance is bliss. That, that's one, one caveat to why, why private sometimes, sometimes makes sense. And another is... You know, uh, this is more philosophical, but like John Stuart Mill, <laughs> I didn't think I'd be busting out the John Stuart Mill. <laughs> he wrote a lot about how what, what's really important in society is that we make it a place that's amenable to experiments that we learn from experimentation, you know, from the marketplace of ideas. And, we, you know, a lot of those experiments end up failing, but some of them end up changing the world and, and for the better. Um, and so in a world in which everything is transparent or private, are people 
less willing to take risks or less willing to do things that might seem unpopular now, but you know, if it works actually will, could, could change the world. Um, and so I, I, I'd too be in general, a, a fan of just radical transparency. If there were certain norms, cultural norms that we adopted alongside side them, but I think they're too difficult for, for many people, which is why founding myths are so valuable because they can help people or the lack of transparency I, in certain ways, they can help you know, large groups of people coordinate under uh, even sometimes an illusion, uh, but, uh, but it leads to a better outcome. What, what might you say to that, Greg? I mean, I feel like in terms of like, there, there's a lot of downsides and potential downsides, right? Like some people will find out that they're paid less than other people and that people with certain skills might be paid more than other people. But on the flip side of that is you may find out when you think about gender pay gaps or any other uh, metrics around diversity and inclusion, companies right now, because they're not really taking a look at that data and no one really looks at it until they're a giant company with a thousand people and hire a diversity and inclusion officer, right? Until they're like, you know, almost Google size, uh, no one takes a look at that data. No one scrutinizes it. So companies that might have good intentions and might be wanting to do right by their employees might be systematic, have systematic bias that they're underpaying women in the company or giving them lower equity grants. And they don't even know because they're not looking at the data. Yeah, I think that's, that's totally legit. And I think that's been a, been, been, been a huge improvement that we've been able to, to do that for, for groups that have been, um, you know, discri- discriminated against. I, I think a concern is you could potentially just create incentives for, you know, there, there are millions of differences between people that you could track against. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Uh, what happens if left-handed people only make 15% of what right-handed people make? Are we going to like, I, you know, like the groups that you mentioned have sort of legit historical claims and stuff like that, but yeah. you know, it, there's just w- worry about what, what, what it could become. Uh, I mean, I mean, for what it's worth, like, I, I, we're not completely transparent within Cafes, but I do tell people what the ranges that we are giving are at this stage of the company. And even someone more junior, because they were one of the first five people to join, because they were horribly underpaid for the first six months and they joined earlier and it was way riskier. They, they have a equal equity grant as to someone who's probably more senior who's joining now. Because it's the, there's a certain de-risking to joining a company that's finished raising a seed round and has a stable team and and you know like, like we're at, at like 18 people now. Yeah. How do you? Um, I have a sort of related-ish question, which is like, you guys are remote. How many different locations are you guys in? I think we're at nine countries now. Yeah. So, is there any? Do you do anything? Is everyone paid the same salary, sort of equivalent bands, or is there any adjustment we, for that? Well, we we basically just look at what market rate is in that geo and pay above market rate when we hire in geos that are cheaper than the U.S. Makes sense. And in an ideal world, we would be able to, if, you, if you're trying to think about how to optimize for fairness, you would pay based on the value of their skills and contributions to the company, irrespective mm-hmm. of geo. Like geo is, should be not, not how you cap 
upside, it should be how you establish baseline minimums. Like you, yep. can't, you can't get anyone to work for you um, comfortably if they're getting paid like 40,000 a year in New York City. That's like basically the poverty line or, or barely yep. above it in New York. So, but I think like in a, if you're maxim optimizing for fairness, you should pay people based on their, how their skills are valuable to your company. Now, I'm just going to be blunt. We cannot, we fail that ideal as a company and we would not be viable as a company if we paid anyone market rate by US standards. So yeah. I would say philosophically, I wish we could be there especially for the early employees who are helping build the company into what it is today. So we're kind of in some middle ground where we're not optimizing for paying people the least amount possible, but we're certainly not like paying probably like global market rate uh, average across all geos for people in cheaper geos. Makes sense. Yeah. Another related question to transparency is, is around founder to investor transparency throughout the life cycle of a company. It, it's easier to be transparent once you've already taken the, the investor's money. But how, how about before you take the investor's money and, and during the pitch? And you know, I, I bet a bunch of founders who you know Shield backed or I backed uh, or a number of people backed who've been immensely successful, if they were totally transparent when they were pitching, you know, in the beginning and said all this, you know, emotional struggles that they're going through and but, all the but that, that's like a that's a funny gray area, but. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you know about Immanuel Kant and um, his writings about whether omission of information is ethically as problematic as lying. So this is a this is a debated subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Where does Kant get out? What's Kant's uh, perspective? I mean, it's more. I, I if I recall correctly, it's that it's it's more or less like the the same an omission. Yeah. They're lying by omission of information is about the same as uh, misrepresentation. That's the you know overt and deliberate. Yeah, it's funny. It's just the founder knows more than anybody else, like all the reasons why it'll fail. And so I, I always appreciate when, when a founder's like, "Hey, here's why we think it, it could work," but also like you know, <laughs> here's a, yeah, yeah. Here's all the things we don't know about, and they're mostly mostly the data is garbage. That's why I'm not telling you the data that you'd normally expect to see in my deck. <laughs> Yeah, how do you think about transparency? On the, uh, how should transparent should a founder be in, when pitching about all the reasons why certain things will fail or all their insecurities about it? Yeah, I um, I like transparency and I I tend to give it. I found uh, recently I've gone really back and forth about this. Actually, literally just like yesterday, I was thinking about this because I uh, so different side of the question is like how transparent should an investor be. I'm generally very transparent and I'll be like, Hey, here's what I like about, about you guys. Here's what my question marks are. And yesterday, some, I, I told this to somebody, he was basically like, so you don't believe that this market will get to X, Y, Z. And he kind of, I was like, Oh man, I really rubbed them the wrong way. I wasn't saying I don't like the company. I was saying like, this is something I need to get comfortable with. And this guy really took it the wrong way. So I'm sort of like thinking through transparency on my own. And how transparent should I be? I don't think I'm going to stop being transparent because it's like not something I can easily stop. In terms of founder transparency, I generally like it. Of course, if you're trying to raise that next round, there's some element of like things you probably can't or shouldn't say about 
the company, but I generally prefer for everything to be out on the table. Would much rather that than like you make an investment and discover a bunch of stuff and then have an antagonistic relationship with the founder for for time than on, um, which which hasn't ever happened to me, but I've heard that from other investors. I, I had a question for both of you as investors. Um, do you think the reason that the, many VCs don't give direct feedback is they want to avoid rubbing founders the wrong way? Because I, I, I really can go through my email and read to you all of the bullshit non-answer answers I've received uh, from VCs. Yeah, totally. There's asymmetric downside. You know, you get a little bit of positivity from giving people feedback um, in that they, they're more grateful for you. But if you, you know, if you rub them the wrong, you know, it's, you don't want to tell someone their baby's ugly, right? We don't tell people their, their baby's ugly in, in society, even though there are a lot of ugly babies out there. And, and similarly, you know, <laughs> unless, you're, <laughs> unless you're already teamed up on, on a venture, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to shoot someone's dream down and, and have them have a negative uh, perspective of you. So yeah, I, I tend to certainly give it when people ask for it, but I, I don't like, unsolicited tell people that their startup's never going to work or, or whatever it is. I go back and forth. Um, sometimes I sort of try to suss out how much, how valuable it would be for me to tell them what I actually think and how, like, are they actually going to change anything? And sometimes I just don't know. Sometimes it's like right down the fairway of something that I've seen a thousand times and I know the pitfalls of. And I almost always try to tell them like, Hey, here's, here's pitfalls of that approach. But sometimes it bites you in the ass and the founder doesn't like you. Or in one case, I really like, like I eventually came around to this, like that the market opportunity was large enough for this business. But then the founder was like, uh, I don't know if you really believe in me. It's <laughs> like, no, like I came around to it and he was like, uh, I want to be in business with somebody that like truly believes in this business. And I was like, well, <laughs> anyway, so it, I think there's certain, like, I can't help it, but some people are just like cheerleaders all the way. I think for me, I like to talk through my, my questions around a company and I think that's not going to change. So then you came outside the founder's house with a boom box, you know, in, in the window. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Trying to earn back. The, that's funny. Greg, another question that you wanted to ask us uh, before this was, uh, we were talking before was, uh, around how VCs think about the social impact of their investments, or, or even do they think about the social impact of their investments? What sort of uh, what, what sort of inspired the what, what inspired the question? And then we'll we'll take a step at it. So, for example, you clearly have. I mean, you can debate it, and I'm sure Airbnb has created a bunch of shoddy research studies to try to dispute it. But Airbnb impacts housing markets; it creates housing crises. And I have sort of ethical problems with renting Airbnbs in places that have housing problems. I, I would rather just deal with a hotel. And I'll give you an example. I, 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 I spent part of the year in Lisbon, Portugal. And I, I bought an apartment on a street that is a famous street in a historical like city, city center of Lisbon. Uh, it was a neighborhood built by the Moors, Alfama. And in the year I bought that apartment, I was the only one out of 85 properties that changed hands that even intended to live in the home in any way, shape or form as like a second home vacation. You have a lot of buildings that are basically empty and the life has been sucked out of, of this entire neighborhood. 
and and the people you know you have a culture disappearing and and a neighborhood kind of disappearing as a portuguese neighborhood so airbnb has a lot of impacts that you know has driven a lot of people who are you know grew up in an area out of that city i'm not saying cities can't change or that market forces can't change cities but in this particular case you have a business model that was predicated on basically ignoring zoning laws that regulate how spaces are used and uh it's had basically negative effects on people so do investors would do they care about making a quick dollar or well a dollar over the 10 year horizon that their investment in an early stage startup matures or are there side constraints uh on the ethical side on our end we sort of like Jake and I have always said we only our our fund is called better tomorrow ventures for a reason like <laughs> we're investing for a better future and so i think now like to your point though like where the question comes in is how do you de- how do you determine what's better and is airbnb destructive to neighborhoods or does it give people an out and a side income and like when they're allow them to be out of their home so that other people can rent it like yeah you know, there there are many sides to every coin i think So I think it's just a judgment call that we make but there are a lot of businesses that we could invest in as fintech investors that basically serve to like make really rich people richer and it's just not something that is personally interesting to us. So from our side of things is like and then there's nothing wrong with that. It's just like not interesting to us. So I think anything that's interesting to us is going to be something that we think makes the world better. And I feel kind of hokey saying it actually, but it is true. It is like part of the reason why like why we do this is like we love that aspect of it. Yeah, I'm I'm not familiar enough with the Airbnb uh you know issues. I'm sure a number of people would would dispute your or you know challenge your 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 premises. I I think and I'd sort of phrase it in that way you the way you phrase it is you know, do these these investors care about ethics or do they care about a quick buck? Another way, you know, challenging way counter way of phrasing is like do you care about being a dictator over what impact is and what good value is or are you open to sort of a pluralism and diversity of viewpoints on, on that perspective and and the freedom for people to decide for themselves what what they think uh what they think positive positive impact uh is now there are things that we all have alignment on in society you know like cigarettes and and we regulate them and 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 so to Shil's point we we yeah we we look at our you know at what we care about individually while acknowledging that <laughs> other people are you know might care about different things and so we might say hey we don't want to do this space because it's it's not what excites us but for other people it's it's great and um yeah it's, I, it's hard I, it's hard for you to draw an ethical bright line it's not like there are like blood diamonds in the startup space <laughs> it's a little bit much a little bit more fuzzy I think yeah. even Jewel it became a different case later on in the in the in the business but um early on you certainly could make the case that vaping is much healthier than smoking and what if we were able to magically transform everyone that smokes cigarettes to smoking an equivalent to vaping an equivalent amount that would be much better for society so i understand how somebody could make the argument and invest in Jewel it's not something i you know personally would ever do it's just not in our Meal wheelhouse but I I certainly can understand that. So I I think you can probably make a similar case for many many different types of companies. 
And then like on the fintech side of thing for us, it's like, you know, lending money to people, like, is that good or is it bad? Does it get them in a cycle of debt? You know, like these are philosophical questions that are very difficult to answer and very smart people could have different takes on them. Yeah. And yeah, another example, there's a, a number of OnlyFans competitors that are, that are, that are coming yes. out. And obviously, you know, a lot of firms, you know, uh, like can't even do them just on principle. But when you look at the impact of it, some people say, oh, you know, this, um, you know, you know, has deleterious effects um, for all the reasons that people say, you know, that, that type of content has deleterious effects. Other people might say, well, you know, there's, you know, 30% of men or whatever it is, percent of men on dating sites will never get a partner. And, and the biggest challenge to society is angry, lonely, you know, uh, men with nothing to do. And maybe this occupies them in a way. And, and people make the same thing about like, you know, VR or other sorts well, of... Well, in the, in the case of this content, it's also like a publisher ownership perspective. Like the pornography industry is exploitive of the actual models, whereas OnlyFans allows them to actually re- recoup the, the profits of, of their performance. Yeah. Uh, there's, yeah. A lot of people have sort of the Nirvana fallacy where they... Uh, you know, compare one approach and the problems it might have to sort of the the best iteration of what that could look like that doesn't exist. Um, and so often you, you have to compare it to, you know, the alternative. And often if people are supporting it, you know, or, or get value from it, it's it's better for them that, that, than the existing alternative. Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating thread to, to go down. Why don't we zoom out and um, why don't you tell us what's, uh, what, what, what's upcoming for, for CapBase? What can people expect? Yeah, do you have some context? Yeah, so we're getting ready for a launch on Product Hunt for Capface. Uh, we've been working really hard on getting a lot of integrations ready and tightening up the product. There's a lot of difficulties that are unforeseen. For example, uh, finding a way to deal with payments digitally when you're dealing with stock transfers, like an employee getting an option grant I'm sorry, restricted shares that are worth like one ten thousandth of a penny <laughs> and paying five cents and then an investor paying a hundred thousand dollars. So we've had, we've had a lot of unforeseen challenges that we've worked through. So we've been deliberately uh, working slowly through our, our beta waiting list and letting a couple companies through at, at one time. And our goal is to be uh, ready to start uh, next year, really advancing the product. Right now, we're really set up for new companies that are newly forming to register on our platform. But we've been aggressively building both a workflow that's really streamlined, that's both automated and pieces of it are manual for importing companies into our system. So we can take existing companies and get them set up on CapBase. And, and that'll be kind of a guided onboarding process where they upload pieces of their document room uh, and we'll parse the data out of the contract systematically to generate their cap table and org, org chart based on the, the legal facts on the ground and the contracts the company has entered into. That's awesome. And, and just because you know, your, your business helps enable startup creation uh, you know, we are having this conversation, you know, eight months or so into the into the pandemic. H- how do we think that this this pandemic will forever change 
uh, versus just temporarily change how, how we think about growing startups? Well, if it's like anything like past recessions, we should expect to see an increase in company formation. During the last recession, you had a 15% year-on-year increase each year for company formation. And a lot of the companies that we think of as household names in tech, uh, from GitHub to Airbnb to Slack to Credit Karma, those companies were all formed during that recession. There's, there should be, ter- I guess the term is hidden secret, where basically uh, there's a stigma against something, but once somebody proves it can be done, or once some you know cataclysmic incident uh, forces people to do it, everyone sort of admits in unison or realizes that they uh, they wanted it all along. And this isn't everybody, but remote was for, for many people, and it already started to, to go that way. But there was a long held stigma that it just it couldn't be done, and m- many people. Prominent people still believe it can't, it can't be done. It can't be scaled. It's suboptimal in, in many directions. And so I'm excited just for more examples to come out and sort of, you know, prove that pr- prove that it can. At this point, have you invested in companies where the founders have never met in person? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, uh, I, I, it's a little different from have you met them as an investor, but have the fa- yeah. <laughs> where the founders have never physically met. We actually haven't done any yet, but I'm sure I'm sure it'll happen soon. One interesting thing that I've seen, like I've seen several companies, I've met with several companies recently that are husband and wife teams, and they had never worked together before. But they're like, now we're just at home all day, and we decided to start a company together because we're spending all of our time together anyway. <laughs> Might as well actually just do a company together. So I've seen a few companies like that that have popped up. I'm sure there will be many companies we invested in the future where the founders have never met. Well, that's a that's a great place to wrap, uh, Greg. For people who want to learn more about uh, CapBase, where where can you point them? Uh, go to CapBase.com. And if anyone's interested in checking out our product, then and any listeners out there want a discount code or just want a product demo or to ask us any questions, feel free to email me at Greg at CapBase.com. Awesome. And if you're building something in fintech, you already know this, but but go to Shiel. Uh, we, we love working with him and, and doing a bunch of deals together, like like Capbase. So so Greg and Shiel, thanks so much for for coming to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Eric. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.